Beards podcast, a boozy dive into mythology, legends, and folklore. Every week we pour a drink and learn about a new story from around the world. I'm Amanda. And I'm Julia. And today we are so excited to be joined by Colin Dickey, a writer both of us have enjoyed, someone whose work we have quoted in previous episodes uh, with just Julia and me. Finally, we get to talk to the person himself. Colin, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. It is our pleasure. Colin, for uh, our listeners who might not know who you are, can you tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and what you talk about? Sure. My name is Colin Dickey. Um, What do I do? Uh, Lately, I think (laughs) what I do is best summarized by um, sort of trying to sort of understand a kind of invisible world, which in the past has taken the form of of ghosts, cryptids, you know, Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, people like that. Uh, my my new book is on secret societies and sort of the fear of kind of hidden conspirators, uh, be they Freemasons or the Illuminati or Satanists or lizard people or what have you. So that's kind of what I do in a nutshell. So Wonderful. Well, I am so stoked for that new book. I have to pick it up. And I am really curious to kind of I guess, begin at the beginning and ask you kind of, how did you begin to explore the world of ghosts and death and haunting? Like, what was the inciting incident or was it something that you were always really interested in? Oh, I don't think there was an inciting incident. Um, I mean, I, you know, I've, I've said this before, but I grew up down the street from the Winchester Mystery House. Um, and that was a kind of touchstone when I was a kid. I think I was sort of always interested in kind of strange architectural spaces and particularly growing up in the suburbs where um you know there everything sort of just seemed sort of boring and and dumb and uninteresting and i i got i think from a from a young age kind of really interested in in like things that were kind of floating beneath the surface i think high school i was very into like the beat generation and you know criminals and drug addicts, even though I was like neither of those things. I was a very boring teenager, <laughs> but I was very much interested in in these kind of subterranean worlds. And um, so that kind of started it, you know, and I think also like growing up in the 80s, again, like it was sort of the time of like the satanic panic, um, which again is something that I, I ended up finally writing about in this new book and this idea that like behind any suburban home or any daycare there was going to be these like secret hidden, you know, satanic temples and terrible things going on. You just would never know. You would just drive past them and never, never suspect anything. So I think I was always interested in in that kind of stuff and like what is happening underneath the surface. You know, that that was kind of the general thing. I I mean, I got into like death just kind of really by accident. You know, my first book was on this series of grave robberies of, of famous people's um, skulls in the like late 18th, early 19th century from about 1790 to 1840. People just like were, were stealing the heads of famous people, primarily Viennese composers, you know, Franz Joseph Haydn, Mozart and uh, Beethoven, well, only parts of Beethoven's head. Um, but also Emanuel Swedenborg, the the Swedish mystic. Um, and so I just, I was trying to understand why that all happened. And it sort of led me down this long road of like trying to understand our relationship to the corpse and and burial rites and what happens like to the body after it's like gone and why why someone would like, you know, why someone who was friends with Franz Joseph Haydn would dig up his body five days after he died and cut off his head and clean the like decomposing head of his friend and then put the skull on his mantelpiece underneath a glass like bell jar. Like, why would you do that? That seems crazy. So I don't know. That's a long answer to that question. I don't know if that gets said any of it, but yeah. No, absolutely it does. And I'm going to backtrack us a little bit back to your your childhood and growing up in suburbia because we talk a lot on the show about how suburbia is really the kind of perfect hotbed for growing up with urban legends and stuff like that, especially like sleepy towns. But was there a particular urban legend? I know you mentioned the satanic panic, but was there a particular urban legend in your town or in your area that you remember just like ingrained itself in your mind? Oh, um, I'm trying to think because San Jose is so goddamn boring in so many different ways. <laughs> um, but there was definitely so I don't know if people know the the geography of the San Francisco Bay Area, but you know, there's kind of, you know, San Jose is on this peninsula and the peninsula runs down. Um, and there's there's this sort of chain of mountains, the Santa Cruz Mountains that runs along that peninsula. 
And, at the, and when you get to the bottom of the bay, that's, that's San Jose, uh, the Santa Clara Valley, which is where I grew up. And it's always strange to call it a valley because it, it's like a floodplain. There's not another side. Mm. <laughs> um, but anyway, so, so the foothills kind of south of, of the Santa Clara Valley, you know, is sort of where you kind of get into the kind of natural edge of, you know, the, the Santa Cruz Mountains. And there was a story, I haven't really thought about this in a long time, but there was a story up, you know, in the Alameda Hills where my friend Danielle lived about the this family of albinos i guess which mm. you know of course now i'm like oh this is wildly problematic but at the time that's <laughs> that is what i rem- i remember the family of albinos i remember that you if you drove down this one road i can't remember what road it was now but it's this kind of windy road that went up into the in the foothills um you know you ran the risk of them sort of assaulting you like jumping on your car and sort of accosting you and that kind of thing so that's although that yeah that was kind of like I don't know. That was all. That was, I don't remember hearing that until like I was in high school. So I'm trying to remember if there's anything else. But as I said, San Jose was really boring. It was really, you know, there wasn't much going on. It was like it was like the '80s. It was like the rise of the tech industry. That's all anybody wanted to talk about. That's all anybody cared about was like Apple and Microsoft. So like, you know, there was no culture. There was nothing interesting happening. Well, we are products of the suburbs too. Julie and I grew up outside New York City in a, a very sleepy Long Island suburb, and we bonded and became friends in elementary school. All you know, coming from this urge of like, there's got to be something else there, baby, you know, and just looking into uh, mythology and being obsessed with urban legends, in part, I think, because, you know, kids crave some kind of simulation. I wonder, Colin, do you think you'd be a different person? Or, or how do you think your your life and your interests might be different if you did grow up in, in San Francisco proper instead of in San Jose? I have no idea. <laughs> That's don't, fair. I, don't, That's totally I have fair. no idea. I can't answer that. <laughs> I think of myself uh, and the the potential that I could have, uh, you know, been a, a city kid and, you know, like grown up harder and grown up, you know, more worldly and knowing more. And probably I would crave then the sameness of the suburbs, right? It's a real sort of grass is greener situation. But the suburbs, at least for us, really prioritized like sameness and the facade and looking like everybody else and looking normal. And so this, you know, fascination that behind all these closed doors, you know, there are unusual things happening was particularly compelling. Yeah, there's famously a lot of the urban legends on Long Island, the area that we're from, is, oh, that house is painted black, so Satanists live there. That is a recurring theme for the kind of small town suburbia of, at least for us, but I feel like in general across the United States. Sure. Isn't that like a Puritan thing? Aren't like Puritans houses painted black because it's like simple? Like you go to Salem, like all the old preserved houses are painted black. That's just like a standard. It's like the opposite of a Satanist thing. Yeah, but this is a Levittown kind of community where they decided to do like faux brick and black and everything like that. So in a community where it's literally every house looks exactly the same, the fact that those people like made their house into a witch house is the thing that was like, oh, the 50s. That's wrong. Something wrong. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All right. Fair. Yeah, no, but if we had come from a much more uh, seasoned and historical neighborhood, I would 100% agree with you on that. Mm. So I would love to talk to you a little bit. I was reading an interview that you did where you were talking about the kind of cross between ghost hunting, particularly ghost hunting shows and the use of technology. And I'm going to start this conversation with a kind of a very broad question, which is, what do you think ghosts are? I mean, I think why I'm fascinated by them is they are a topic of interest to any number of different people for a whole series of different reasons. And I think that is um, really hard to reduce to any one thing. I think for a lot of people there, whether or not they believe in them or not, they're kind of way of dealing with their own mortality. I think for other people, they're a way of like processing grief and loss of others. Um, I think they're a sort of way of talking about kind of just like generally the unexplained. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, in writing Ghostland, what I sort of came away with over and over again is their way to like process our weird feeling about architecture. Mm. So, and I don't think any of these are like, those are all just like sort of like, you know, anthropological or sociological answers. Like I do, I like that. I don't, I don't have a feeling or a, a, a belief about the paranormal beyond it. I get yelled at a lot for being a, a debunker. And I just feel like it's really just like, that's a question that's sort of, it's it's such a personal question that it, it seems kind of a waste of everybody's time to kind of, you know, try and answer. So I don't. So I have no idea what ghosts are. They are 
whatever you want them to be. That is a totally great and valid answer. I was just curious. We talk a lot on the show about ghosts being a a kind of physical manifestation of memory a lot of time. Like that's that's my personal theory that I've talked about on the show quite a bit. So I am very curious then to ask you about your thoughts on ghost hunters on television and what they are, what they believe they're capturing, because I know that you've you've talked a little bit about that before. So can you give me your your hot takes on uh, ghost hunters? Oh, I mean, what do they what do they think they're capturing? I think they're, they're I think they're having an experience. They're capturing an experience. They are like, mm-hmm. um, I you know, like I guess like one term that gets used around a lot, um, you know, is legend tripping. I think they are sort of interested in, again, a kind of break from the normal, a break from the everyday. So you, you know, you you know, like, what are they capturing? They're, they're capturing what they want to hear again. You know, like, I mean, I've, I've listened to a lot of EVP recordings. I have watched a lot of K2 meters light up. I have seen a lot of orbs. That is what you want it to be. I, I guess like, do I have a hot take? I don't know. Like, it's great for them. I'm happy for them as long as they're not, you know, contributing to the destruction or vandalism of, you know, uh, historic buildings or whatever. I mean, like, good on you. Like, that's great. Great for them. I'm happy for them. Um, that's great. I am famously been quoted as saying I will fight Zach Bagans in a parking lot any day of the week. So I appreciate the like good for them mentality of like, especially the televised ghost hunters, because a lot of times my husband is super into those shows and he He's a very strong believer in the paranormal. And a lot of times I will, uh, I'll make fun of him a little bit where he'll be like, oh, did you see like that clip where they heard the ghost say get out? And then they play the recording. It's just like, I'm like, that sure sounded like a voice saying get out. Sure. If you say so. I mean, you know, the the question I guess that I have, is like, why so many? I mean, like the idea that there are there are dozens of these shows over and over and over again, all, not all, but most of which are going to follow the same format. There's like the ghost hunting crew. It's always like a dude and his best friend and then his girlfriend. Like, it's like that kind of weird, <laughs> you know, like, and, and, you know, when I was, when I was talking to like the ghost hunting groups in, in LA in particular, I mean, this is a little cliche, but it's true. You know, everybody was trying to get the, you know, be the next reality show. So everybody like, you know, had their website, had t-shirts, had, had their little, like their crew and their branding. And so I, I get it, I, you know, on the sense of just like, this is America and, you know, reality TV is reality TV, but it, it is fascinating the, the sort of appetite for the same thing over and over and over again, that these shows will go to the same places. The people all look at the same the evidence is all kind of the same. It's And it's this kind of almost like, you know, kind of almost in a Freudian way, this kind of compulsion of repetition, which I, I think is maybe more more interesting um, than what they actually catch in on any show. Like, I think of like one of my favorite books of all time um, is this Ann Carson book, Autobiography of Red, which has this kind of forward in the beginning, which is almost this kind of like mini essay. And one of the things she says is she she's paraphrasing the the French philosopher Jean Baudrillard. It's not, uh, she quotes him directly, but it's not a direct quote. Like she like kind of paraphrases him. But the, the line is, consumption is not a passion for the substance, but a passion for the code. Uh, and I think mm-hmm. about that a lot, that like what you are consuming in these ghost shows over and over again is a structure, you know, like the, the beats are all the same. And that's, I mean, I feel that way about like TV generally. I feel like everybody who's so excited about prestige television, it's always the same. It doesn't matter if it's <laughs> like the Sopranos or Westwood or whatever. It's always the same fucking show, you know, like, so I, I see that. So when, every time I watch one of these ghost hunting shows, it's just like, like, I don't even know what, which one this is. I, Zach Vegas. I don't know who that guy is. There's like a million of those guys. They're all the same. They've got like good looking pecs, short hair. They're like just super broy. And so I guess like what's really going on there is there there's a certain I think there's like a construction of a of a very specific kind of masculinity. Mm-hmm. I think there's a way of creating a kind of masculine performance. And certainly there are there are women ghostbusters, but as I said, in a lot of them, it's like it's like the girlfriend or the wife. And anyone where where she or the women are sort of pitched in either like, you know, semi-subordinate or ancillary or supportive roles or any of the ones in which 
you know, the women are sort of more prone to be the kind of believers versus the kind of rational skeptic, skeptic technology dudes. It's all like a weird performance of gender roles in this way. And I think, I think the tech stuff, the broiness, like, what are you doing over and over and over again? This is why it wouldn't work if it was just one. If it was just one show, you wouldn't be able to do this. You have to, you have to do it over and over again because mm-hmm. you have to create this like archetype of the technologically adept broy dude who is rationally and scientifically trying to make a space for the heebie-jeebies <laughs> as a way of 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 corralling and cordoning off i think a very basic human emotion that like you know masculine bros can't perform or be be allowed to show in more in like kind of more traditional context so you have to kind of like put it in a haunted house so that you can like you know, like, I, I don't know, like, who who isn't, like, scared at night alone in an empty house? Like, I don't care who, like, bro you are. Like, it happens, <laughs> you know? Like, I mean, what the hell? That guy, I mean, there was just that story about that guy who, like, shot that woman because she, like, turned down the wrong driveway. You know, like, this is, like, you know, like, people are freaked out to be home alone. And, like, and so what happens is now you have this whole regiment of dudes who are kind of performing a way to be scared of the dark in a way that preserves these kind of toxic masculinity tropes. So that's that's my reading on that. That is so interesting. That's absolutely incredible. As you were kind of talking about that too, I was making some interesting connections in my brain between those ghost hunting shows and also shows kind of like The Bachelor or The Bachelorette, where all of these men are basically the same. And it doesn't matter how many seasons they put out. All the guys are going to hit the same beats each season. There's going to be, you know, men who are like fighting and there's going to be men who are crying and upset, but like trying to hold it together because toxic masculinity says they can't cry over a woman. And I think that's just like really interesting because these are supposed to be quote unquote reality. And in the case of the Bachelorette and the Bachelor franchises, those are, you know, a competition show where the ghost hunting shows are not. But kind of they are at the same time where the prize is, hey, maybe we're going to prove that ghosts are real. Oh, yeah, it's definitely a competition show. Yeah. In the way you're talking about. And I mean, it's also like a travel show. You know, it's like, yeah, it's like the amazing race meets The Bachelorette, meets, um, you know, Survivor or some shit like that. Like, and that's just, Mm -hmm. that's the formula. And it not only works, it works better the more times it gets shown because, you know, I mean, again, it's, yeah, like how how does reality TV start? It starts with MTV's The Real World. And it's, I think it's the second season Mm -hmm. where they get the asshole. and, And that's when the whole thing clicks, right? Like the first season is fine. There's normal fighting, normal people, normal tension. Yes. It's the second season when they get the asshole and they're like, this is now compulsively watchable. Then every reality show has got to have the asshole. Um, you know, I had a friend who used to edit for one of these like cooking shows mm. and he would talk about how the producers would like, it was like a, a show about cupcakes <laughs> and the producers would send <laughs> notes saying like, this needs to be more life or death. And he was like, it's cupcakes. It's a show about cupcakes. <laughs> you know, it doesn't, it's not life or death. So I think like, yeah, like all of that stuff is what then leads to, you know, these sort of paranormal reality shows. And the more that you see, the more they look exactly alike, the more they follow the trope, the more viewers are convincing themselves like this actually is reality because it's showing up over and over again. This isn't an anomaly. This isn't just, this isn't one guy. This is like, dozens of guys and it's comforting to know they all kind of look like this Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what's the hit rate on these shows how often is there something that they do detect and can't explain away the way that the editing is done is they're always going to find quote-unquote evidence right like it they'll usually per episode visit like three places and there's a reason that you pointed out like it is a travel show and there's a reason that most of these shows are on the travel channel because they are like basically just travel shows with a hint of spookiness to them, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, like every episode, they'll have one or two things where they'll be like, so we took our recording to an EVP expert to see if he could explain it. He's like, I don't know. Yeah, could be a ghost. And that's it. That's it. You always have an expert who says like, 
I can't definitively say if this was or was not a ghost. So I feel like if they debunked their evidence every single episode, it wouldn't work as well. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's it's that element of uh, maybe this time is the time, right? Like that that hope or tension or reason to come back and watch the next episode of the TV show against which a network can sell ads. Uh, you know, that is really the driving force. I'm a huge consumer, Colin, of like reality and competition shows, and also a lot of genre fiction, especially romance. And so I, I have been thinking a lot in myself about like patterns are comforting and we are pattern recognizing animals. And those deviations, those surprises, sort of the more the more tight my expectations are, the smaller the deviation has to be for it to register for me. You know, where watching a show for 45 seasons like Survivor, they make the the smallest change to how something typically goes. And, you know, my heart races like I've been startled, you know, by something because it's it's the smallest change, but the baseline is so firmly established. And I think that's why these little blips of the paranormal where 2,000 times out of 2001 that I look in that corner of the room, nothing is there. The one time it seems something might be, you know, the the more firmly entrenched the pattern, the, the smaller that change has to be for it to really register. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think as a as a travel thing, again, I mean, I wrote about this in Ghostland, but like for all of the kind of silliness, these are these things are like keeping some places alive. The Merchant's House Museum, which is under constant threat of developers, like they've embraced their kind of paranormal legacy to kind of make uh you know a, a new generation care about this building um which seems great seems good to me yeah i mean i think it yeah like right so like this idea that like you know you look at a row of 10 houses and the 11th one there's something off about it and the way that you're describing about that seems cool and strange and fun and worth sort of checking out i don't know like i i don't have a problem with like the code of consumption per se particularly with like fiction with like romance novels or i don't watch prestige TV, but I don't have a problem with it. It's more the the way when that becomes packaged as reality, not in competition shows, but in like in shows where you're being sold something as reality when it's clearly been sort of molded. I think like true crime is a really good example of this. Like all true crime looks the same. And that's really strange to me because crime does not look the same. And a lot of like uh, in like mm-hmm. important or forgotten or unsolved, you know, murders and crimes are just uninteresting to producers and uninteresting to editors because they don't fit the pattern because true crime is not about um, focusing on actual crimes. It's focusing on creating a narrative over and over again that can be sold and repackaged. So, so it's just a really question of like, the sort of structural repetition is not the problem. It's more the question of what, what are we doing with that structural repetition? And, and what, what are the benefits and drawbacks of it? Well, that sounds like a wonderful segue into your newest book, Under the Eye of Power. But first, Juliet, let's take a short break and go grab a refill. Sounds good. Let's go. Hey, this is Julia, and welcome to The Refill. Of course, at this point in the podcast, we always have to thank our patrons, especially our supporting producer-level patrons, Alicia, Anne, Brittany, Fruity Chick, Hannah, Jack Marie, Jane, Nieselkins, Lily, Matthew, Megan Moon, Nathan, Phil Fresh, Rico Like, Captain Jonathan Malachi Cosmos, Sarah Scott, and Zazie, and our legend-level patrons, Ariana, Audra, Bex, Chibi-Yokai, Morgan, Sarah, Schmitty, and BM Yep Scotty. And if you would like to join our Patreon. Something I want to highlight for you all right now is one of our tiers on Patreon, which is our ad-free tier. For only $8 a month at patreon.com slash spiritspodcast, you could, hey, skip the refill, which I get it. I'm not insulted in any way. Sometimes you just want to get right back into the action of the episode, and I totally appreciate that. So if you join up at our ad-free tier at $8 a month, you can get right back to the action every episode. We also have some other great bonuses like recipe cards for every episode, director's commentary, we have our quarterly tarot card reading, and so, so much more. So check out all of those tiers and more at patreon.com slash spiritspodcast right now. Of course, I also want to recommend something to you, and that is actually a novel that Amanda recommended to me that I am very much enjoying. It is called The Bright and Breaking Sea by Chloe Neal. It is romantic. It is adventurous. It has magic in it. And it also takes place in a like alternate reality 18th century where Napoleon is not Napoleon, but also there's magic involved. It's very good. I'm really enjoying it right now. I'm about halfway through and it's a real, real fun time. So that is The Bright and Breaking Sea by Chloe Neal. 
Speaking of sea adventures, have you checked out Join the Party yet? Join the Party is an actual play podcast with tangible worlds, genre-pushing storytelling, and collaborators who make each other laugh each week. DM Eric and emphatic players Amanda, yes, Amanda from this show, Brandon, and me, Julia, welcome everyone to the table from longtime tabletop RPG players to folks who have never touched a role-playing game before. And our current campaign is actually a pirate story that is set in the world of plant and bug folk. We also have the campaign, which is a monster of the week game that is set in a weird summer camp. Campaign two was a modern superhero game. And then campaign one was a high fantasy story. And once a month, we also release the after party where we answer your questions about the show and how we play the game. So what are you waiting for? Pull up a chair and join the party. Search for join the party in your podcast app or go to jointhepartypod.com. We are sponsored this week by BetterHelp. Now, Therapy is something that I have really benefited from starting and continuing on even as I get older and get to know myself a little better because getting to know yourself is really a lifelong process and it's really important that you deepen your self-awareness and understanding of yourself and how you relate to others because sometimes we don't know what we want or why we react the way we do until we talk things through and that is why I love my therapy and if you are interested in trying therapy, BetterHelp connects you with a licensed therapist who can take you on that journey of self-discovery from wherever you are. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com spirits today to get $10 off your first month. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com slash spirits. Now, our next sponsor is here for the content creators in our audience. If you're a content creator, it has never been easier to just be, you know, average. And if you don't have an idea or an answer, you can just find and follow someone else's. But with a quick Google search or a prompt inside an AI tool, you can produce commodity content. But what about respecting your audience? What about quality and craft and creativity? Like, don't you want resonance, not just to reach out? I am going to recommend to you a podcast, Unthinkable, with Jay Acunzo. Since 2016, Unthinkable has inspired creators to ship more personal, powerful work. Unthinkable is a show about trusting yourself more than best practices. You can hear stories of amazing creators who resonate deeply with their audience, not because they copied everyone on social media or elsewhere in their work. These creators made choices that caused them to break from the conventional and create things their way. It's a refreshing look at the creative process through story and sound. Unthinkable is an inside look at the unconventional choices of quality-obsessed creators and the memorable things they made as a result. You can learn to create what only you can create by hearing the stories of people who have planted their flags for quality, craft, and creativity. And these stories are all about feeling seen and how to better execute as a creator who cares about quality and creativity in a world that seems to focus on, you know, just volume and copycat work. New episodes arrive every other week to help you think differently and execute better in your creative work. You'll leave each episode full of new ideas and inspiration, and they've explored ideas like imposter syndrome, writer's block, and the difference between telling stories and being storytellers. The show asks questions like, how do we describe our ideas so others get creative? Should we even care what others think of our work? And where does inspiration come from? Again, hosted by Jay Acunzo, who's an author, creative coach, and a guy who has spent his career obsessing over the same aspiration slash delusion to be the Anthony Bourdain of stories about creativity, you can listen to Unthinkable anywhere you get podcasts or visit the link in our show notes for a starter pack of stories for new listeners. Check it out. And now let's get back to our episode. So Colin, something that we love to ask uh, all of our guests is what drinks have you been enjoying lately, whether that is cocktails, mocktails, coffee drinks, uh, what have you? What what has been your your cup of tea, so to speak, lately? Oh, I you know, I did for the fall and winter, I was drinking this thing called a gold rush, which I um, I was making honey syrup where you boil like a cup of water and a cup of honey. And then you have this like stable syrup. It's good for mixing. And then it's like so it's like honey, lemon juice and bourbon. That was like a real good winter drink. And now I'm doing black Manhattans, which is a, a Manhattan where you 
you swap out the vermouth for Averna. Um, and then you add, it's like Angostura bitters and then a little bit of orange bitters. And um, uh, that's what I've been doing lately. And that that works really well. I went to this like weird kind of haunted kind of house thing in LA last Halloween. It was sort of this interact. It was kind of like a, and I, I don't mean this pejoratively because I had a huge amount of fun. Um, it was like a low rent sleep no more. It was like, nice. you know, you had this building where you kind of wandered through and there were these characters and you were kind of, you could talk to them, you could interact with them mm. and you were trying to sort of understand this story. Was it House of Spirits? It might've been House of Spirits. Have you done this? I'm familiar with it, yeah. Okay. And I mean, what was fantastic about it is that unlike Sleep No More, you had like two hours, you had a time limit and they gave you four mini cocktails over the course that they had like, and they were not mini at all, um, <laughs> I, like which was fantastic and um, may, again, made it a really fun time. But um, one, of the, one of the ones that I've had that I've been trying to like recreate ever since was like, a, it was like a, a bourbon based cocktail with like apricot liqueur in it somehow. And that was just like a really good combo. And um, that's, that's my goal for, for the spring and summer is to, to recreate that one. Heck yeah. Yeah. There's nothing better than getting blasted and then like walking into a room while someone like crawls backwards towards you. You're like, oh, please <laughs> hold on a second. There's a photo of of me and the person I'm with posing with one of the like dressed up characters that uh, her and I have zero memory of taking. We, like it was absolutely <laughs> like by the time we got home, we stopped and got tacos, had were fine, no hangover whatsoever the next day, but for like about two minutes, we appear to have completely gotten blackout drunk just long <laughs> enough to take this photo, which neither of us have any recollection of taking. And uh, and then and then we're fine. So <laughs> you really got to pace yourself at if you're going to enjoy House of Spirits listeners, I would recommend pacing yourself as you go through the night. Eat a good meal before. Yeah. Yeah. If you're going to enjoy it, listeners, I recommend not pacing yourself. I recommend <laughs> going full tilt. Dr. Dickey is not that kind of doctor. Nonetheless, <laughs> our platform is yours. <laughs> I was actually in Sleep No More the night of the 2016 election. Oh, wow. Um, which, looking back, uh, traumatized me a bit for life, but I think is a wonderful transition into your newest book coming out this July, Under the Eye of Power. And I would love to know, A, I'm really obsessed with subtitles of books. Yours is How Fear of Secret Societies Shapes American Democracy. And I would love to know a bit about the genesis of this book, what started, you know, catching your eye and and how your interests form their way into like a book proposal and then outline and then a, a full ass book, which is not a thing I have any experience with. <laughs> um, yeah. So the book that I sold after Ghostland was originally about conspiracy theories writ large. Oh, gosh, it was going to do chronic Lyme disease. It was going to do the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. It was going to um, do like the whole like perpetual motion engines. I think I had a whole chapter mm -hmm. about that. And then there was going to be a chapter on, on, on Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster and a chapter on aliens and a chapter on the flat earth. I put the, the Bigfoot and the alien stuff at the end because I was like, this is, this is going to be the most fun part. And um, I want to save it for for the end. So I wrote two thirds of this book, and then realized that I, I the first two thirds were just not working whatsoever. So I went back to my my editor and I said, "Can I just write this book on Bigfoot, UFOs, and and flat Earth?" And that took some convincing. But that so I just basically threw out like sixty thousand words of of the book that I wrote and started over from scratch. Brutal. And so that's you know the unidentified and and you know ultimately I. I much to my regret, I had to cut the flatter section as well because that was like one of my favorite parts. Uh, but it just wasn't fitting for the book. It didn't. It didn't make sense. It was the right move. So I ended up with a lot of this material that I had already done. Although, as I said, it it didn't didn't work and it wasn't clicking and I wasn't happy with it. And so, like 2020, a couple months before the unidentified was supposed to come out, a friend of mine helped me move, and he was the one who was just like sort of as we were driving this U-Haul to my new apartment, he was one who's just like, I don't know, it sounds like your next book would be Secret Societies. And it it took me a while to sort of understand, like, again, I had so much of the Freemason and the Illuminati stuff, the sort of anti-Semitic stuff, the anti-Catholic stuff. I had all that stuff sitting around. It took a while to figure out, like, again, like how they fit together and and, and what they were doing. Yeah, so that, that took like another couple of months. I think like the way that I, like I, keep, I tend to conceive of my books in kind of idiosyncratic ways that make sense to myself, but uh, like 
the marketing people don't let me talk about because I don't <laughs> I don't know that they make sense to like average people. But like, you know, Ghostland was my book about architecture, about, you know, living in, in buildings. And um, The Unidentified was my book about borderlands and and the frontier. And this is my book about undergrounds and subterranean spaces. So it's it's sort of, I mean, in some cases, literally, you know, in terms of, you know, like, the way basements get sort of used in in a various number of conspiracy theories and like back rooms and this idea mm-hmm. that there's always like a a door behind which something is is hiding you know or you know not as literally but still vaguely literally like the idea of the underground railroad the idea that there is you know this underground the weather underground those kinds of things so um so once i sort of started to think of it as like you know there is the front room and the back room there is the above ground and the subterranean space I started to sort of understand the way the book could kind of come together in a way that I think was cool and fun. So that's that's how it came together. So, yeah, it's <laughs> a great answer. That's awesome. We talk a lot about liminal space on the show and this idea that this book kind of focuses on the outward facing and then the behind the scenes. What was something that really like surprised you in doing the research to put this book together in terms of the stories that you were writing about? You know, once I had sort of decided that this book was about groups real or imagined that were thought to be conspiring behind the scenes to subvert American law and American democracy. Once I once that became the template, I think one of the most surprising things is the groups that fell into that. So, you know, as mentioned, you know, that's that's the Underground Railroad. The Underground Railroad, mm-hmm. you know, I mean it's not as it's not nearly as networked or top down as I think its detractors imagined it. But yeah, this was a loose group of people who were breaking American law, you know, sort of conspiring to do that. So, you know, so I was like, oh, well, this is also about the Underground Railroad. This is about slave insurrections. This is about, you know, Denmark Vesey in Charleston, South Carolina, you know, and then it's also about the CIA and the FBI, you know, like these are also secret groups who have worked behind the scenes to pervert the will of of the American people and break laws. That's like literally what they were doing for decades and probably still are to a large degree. So like once I had sort of figured out that that was kind of structure, I kind of cast a wide net that then I kind of peeled back, but I, I sort of really just started to naively ask that question, who who falls into this group, you know, or into this definition, which groups fit that? And um, so that was that was a fun and kind of fascinating experience to sort of make, you know, the Illuminati and lizard people talk to, you know, abolitionists and the CIA and, um, you know, some sort of weird banking conspiracists and crap like that. So Another real interest of mine is heist movies. And I am really curious about what makes us root for the folks trying to subvert the system versus the like feeling of, you know, personal indignation that I think underlies a lot of the conspiracy theories that you're chronicling in this book about, you know, how dare they kind of say they're doing one thing and then actually be doing another is what I perceive to be kind of one of the motivating impulses of, you know, they're they're using a position of power or resources, whoever the they is in that sentence, you know, to do something that, you know, I, average show would not do. And why perhaps it's so cathartic to see, you know, a band of ragtag heroes that have been, you know, unfairly marginalized, like take what they are to take from the government or a bank or whatever it is that they're robbing. Those two things have some kind of relationship in my mind that I'm trying to pin down. And I wonder if you have any takeaways uh, after the process of writing this book about, you know, what what are the the fears or motivations that make these theories so not just kind of believable, but like motivating and life-altering for people who become true believers? I mean, I think that whole, like, how dare they thing is um, somewhat of a dodge. I think that people, Mm. I mean, the conclusion that I've ultimately come to is that people come to conspiracy theories because they are, they're comforting. You know, there's that sense of, like, how dare they, these these elites, this cabal, um, you know, often which is sort of just, like, you know, two steps away from some sort of anti-Semitic dribble. But, like, you know, ultimately, it's about believing that there is order to the world, even if it's a malevolent order, it's still an order that um, explains things and explains why things aren't working out for you in the way that you want. It. And it gives you a villain, you know, and so, mm. I mean, I, you know, I opened the book with, 
with this quote from Karl Popper, the uh, mid-century philosopher who is the, you know, a person according to the OED who, who first uh, coins the term conspiracy theory. And, you know, his line is uh, the conspiracy theory mindset, or I'm a little paraphrase here, but conspiracy theory mindset is when you get rid of God and ask what is in his place, mm-hmm. um, you know, and so it's about this kind of belief that there is a, an order, a kind of total, like totalizing explanation for everything in the world um but it is malevolent and you know so it's you know it's it's less like the god of like a kind of you know uh patriarchal judeo muslim christian god and more of a kind of like kind of polytheistic you know like the you know the kind of like figure of a kind of satan or something i mean i guess that's that's christian but you know this idea that there is like a negative force out there When I went to the Flat Earth Conference, this isn't in the book, unfortunately, but, you know, I talked to this guy who was a pediatrician, worked with children, for God's sakes. And he told me that, like, child of his had been born with autism. But as I sort of pieced together his story, it was about 18 months from that to vaccines to Mm -hmm. Satan controls the world through seven powerful families that he talks to via telephone. Like, you know, like that, you know, that's... Because that then makes sense, right? Like it, you know, like if for someone, I mean, I I wouldn't be, I wouldn't think one would would have to feel sad about having a child with autism, but but this guy appeared to feel like, you know, this was this was some problem for him, you know, that that needed an explanation and he settled on vaccines. Yeah. And from there it became a question. Like one of the stories that I talk about in the in the book is the um the Ursuline convent riot of 1834, which is the beginning of the kind of current panic around groomers and um, this idea of like rings of sexual predators, right? This idea that mm-hmm. Catholic like convents in the 1820s and 30s were this like place where priests who like used the confessional basically as a form of mind control, kind of half blackmail, half mind control, mm-hmm. were taking these women, you know, away from their their fathers and their future husbands and away from their, you know, future children, taking them out of, you know, like circulation in a kind of like sexual familial community sense and thus doing horrible things to them. You know, so there's this rampant suspicion that these, you know, teenage and and young adult women are, you know, subjected to all sorts of sexual depravities. But that's a problem because this is the 1820s, there's going to be babies, right? There's going to be unwanted pregnancies, right? So, mm-hmm. Where are the children? If this conspiracy theory is true, where are the children? Well, there aren't any children. Yeah. So then you have to add a new layer to your conspiracy theory. Oh, the children are all being murdered. It's So it's not just about sexual abuse. It's now about infanticide, too, because they have to cover up the evidence because there is no evidence. To kind of preserve, yeah, the, the theory and the, the fiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the problem with, uh, with these conspiracy theories is that um, you keep having to add on to them as the evidence doesn't match the story. And that just sort of keeps going on and on and on. And you get more and more elaborate conspiracy theories in order to sort of justify the perception of the world as it as it sort of appears. I forget where I was going with that, but you see where I'm going with that. I, you can fill in the blanks. Yeah. But it seems like it creates kind of a pipeline from, you know, just one basic thing all the way to Satan is talking to families on the telephone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah, because once once you have allowed yourself to doubt the reality before you, you can, you can do whatever you want. I like years ago, this guy, Francisco Goldman, this novelist wrote this nonfiction book about this, this murder of a, of a Jesuit priest in, I believe I want to say Guatemala. I'm so sorry. I can't, it's been, this has been like 15 years. So I I really apologize if I'm getting the country wrong. And, you know, this was a liberation theologist, um, you know, and so the, the government assassinated him. Mm. Um, and then they they concocted this really wild story about uh, he was murdered by his gay lover. And then the gay lover had this like pit bull and the pit bull had like gnawed the corpse's head, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, and so it was this kind of, you know, cover up. And and I, I went and saw Francisco talk and he had this line during the the Q&A which was so just kind of batshit but amazing where he was like you know Virginia Woolf talks about a room in one's own you need a room in one's own to be able to write and for totalitarian governments a room in one's own is legal immunity and impunity mm. once you know that you're going to get away with it 
you can make up whatever shit you want. You can, you're free to be creative. That sort of like opens the floodgates. And so I, I think of like a lot of conspiracy theories is basically like once you sort of give yourself the freedom to reject what you believe to be the party line, the sky's the limit, you know? Like you can just, you can go nuts. That's why, you know, again, I keep going back to flat earth people because they're such a good example of this. But like one of the people at the conference uh, or the convention I went to basically said as much. He said, we are the tip of the spear because if you can doubt that the earth is round, you can doubt anything, you know? And I think that is where we're heading is this world where, People are not happy with their current reality. They're not happy with things as they see it. They're looking for a way out of that cognitive dissonance, a way out of feeling bad. And conspiracy theories come along and they say, like, they give you license to believe what you want to believe. And it's very liberating. I think I think people embrace it. People, I mean, we talk a lot about people on the right, obviously, because they tend to be more dangerous. But people on the left love a conspiracy theory because it's liberating. Right. Believing that like Monsanto is responsible for it. I mean, Monsanto is just a shitty, awful company, but they're not like evil masterminds. They're just capitalists, you know, but like yeah. the the need to create to take sort of ordinary villains, you know, the Bush administration who are just a bunch of chuckle fucks with too much money and power and make them into these kind of masterminds of malevolence. Like, and then you look at the Iraq war like that. Nobody masterminded that. Like y'all had like everything at your disposal. You couldn't even pull that off. Like there's no... There's no conspiracy here. You guys are just assholes. That's my feeling about that. Yeah. Realizing the kind of banality of evil, the banality of abuse, of crime, of all of these real things, it kind of takes away the, you know, thrill of thinking, man, this is like this, this must be over the top in order to happen so much. And it's not the, you know, everyday emotions that I experience of, you know, anger, resentment, et cetera, all these things that through willingness and opportunity and whatever else, you know, snowball into something that could be explained in a less personal way that makes me think about my role in the, the you know, events around me and my culpability in them and my opportunity to maybe make them better. It absolves me of all of that because I'm I'm a mere observer on the outside and not, you know, a person on the inside. I agree. Like, listen, I, I watch procedurals too. I, I know the thrill of thinking, man, you know, this, this crime scene looked banal, but really Really, it was that someone was so smart that they like had the ice pick that melted and then the cat licked it and like then the crime, you know, unfolded. And it is valuable to be honest about the reasons why these things appeal to us and what I really appreciate about so much of your work, Colin, including especially The Unidentified, which we quoted in our episode on the Loch Ness Monster. And that chapter in particular really stood out to me about why these stories fascinate us and, and what that says about us, because I think it's a two way street. The, the art looks back, right? Like you gaze into the abyss, the abyss gazes back, whether that abyss is reality TV show or a novel you're reading or something that you kind of get sucked into online. It appeals for a reason and it, it rubs off on you in some reason some way as well. Yeah. And again, I mean, like I, I always get dinged for being like a killjoy and I resist that because I'm always like, I know I, I love a weird thing. I, I like, I yes. think the, the point, particularly the point of the unidentified was to really sort of offer up like the idea that there, there are aspects and elements of wonder out there and it's perfectly normal and healthy to want them and to seek them out. And there are ways to embrace the weirdness of the world without sort of succumbing to these kind of conspiratorial ideas, you know, and, and again, like, or like on a, on a darker side, I mean, everybody who is so, you know, sure that there's this evil ring of, you know, child abusers out there that has, has yet to be discovered. Those people will never talk about the Catholic church, which is a, a legitimate conspiracy, mm -hmm. you know, was like a legitimate conspiracy of sexual abuse among minors that like was networked, was coordinated, was a, a violation of law and dignity and ethics and went underground for years. And so like, it's, it's that weird thing where like, like the question you have to ask is like, what is your desire? Why are you interested in this topic? What, like, what is, what is driving the desire? Is, is that desire clouding your ability to sort of think through what's actually happening here and then from that, are there other ways to satisfy your desire that are in a less destructive way? Because I don't think the desire is bad. I'm not like out here telling people like, you know, stay away from spooky houses. Spooky houses are cool and rad. Like a mm -hmm. crazy old hotel is wonderful. Mm -hmm. You know, like go, go nuts, you know, like it's just like be 
cognizant of the structural patterns that you're putting on these things. Be cognizant of like why you believe the things that you believe. Like it's cool to be like awestruck by the pyramids, but as soon as you're like, oh, you know, aliens built this, like you, you've sort of entered in this other phrase. So like, how do you just maintain that sense of wonder and joy about the world without giving into these stories, which I think are, are kind of way more harmful than, than people are prepared to admit something like that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a, a really good, empowering, keep an eye out note to end on. <laughs> so Colin, Under the Eye of Power is out on July 11th of this year, 2023. Can you let folks know where they can follow you and your writing and your work and thoughts about spooky houses and shit online? Yeah, I mean, I'm like, there's a website. That's just my name, colindickey.com. I assume at some point it'll get updated. Um, I, I need to do something about that. I'm most active on on Twitter and Instagram, uh, which is just my full name, Colin Dickey. On Instagram, I tend to be a little bit more on brand um, on Twitter. It's just more like dumb thoughts coming out of my head. So be warned about that. But yes, but I also try and keep people updated on, on book stuff and other events and stuff like that. So yeah, I'm around. Awesome. And remember, listeners, next time you go to check out the creepy hotel or creepy house in your neighborhood, stay creepy. Stay cool. Spirits was created by Amanda McLaughlin, Julia Shafini, and Eric Schneider, with music by Kevin McLeod and visual design by Allison Wakeman. Keep up with all things creepy and cool by following us at Spirits Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Tumblr. We also have all of our episode transcripts, guest appearances, and merch on our website, as well as a form to send us in your urban legends and your advice from folklore questions at spiritspodcast.com. Join our member community on Patreon, patreon.com slash spiritspodcast, for all kinds of behind-the-scenes goodies. Just a dollar gets you access to audio extras with so much more, like recipe cards, both alcoholic and non-alcoholic, for every single episode, director's commentaries, real physical gifts, and more. We are a founding member of Multitude, an independent podcast collective and production studio. If you like spirits, you will love the other shows that live on our website at multitude.productions. Above all else, if you liked what you heard today, please text one friend about us. That's the very best way to help keep us growing. Thanks for listening to Spirits. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.